I have begun each of the sermons on this uh, journey through James with a tool, often a tool that is not recognizable by the average person. Not that any of you are below average or even average, you're all above average. But this particular one, I just knew what it was because at home I have a pair of upholstery pliers that are called hog nose pliers. You know, you, you use a little C-clamp with these pliers and you can do upholstery on cars. So I figured this had to be some kind of hog nose because it really looks like a hog's nose to me. But uh, beside those that I have already said what this is, anybody got an idea of what this particular, you do? Yes, sir. Tell me, what is it? Got an idea? Changed his idea. He changes changed his mind on answering the question. What does he think? Doesn't know? Anybody? Ruthie? No? Norris, it is the same age as you. It was patented in 19... You told me you were born in 28, right? 28. Patented in 1928. Now, I don't know if that's when this one was made by W.H. Voss, William Voss. Anybody? Okay, many of you <coughs> are not doing your own laundry, thanks to mom. Some of you don't even know what a lawn, uh, washing machine looks like. I have the theory that if it fits in there, that's the way you do your laundry. So, I mean, as much as you can cram in one of those big capacity ones, put a little soap in there, and you're good to go. My wife doesn't like that. And if you do that enough, you don't have to do the laundry anymore because you've messed up so much. But uh, and now she knows my secret. But this goes back to when washing machines had ringers on them. My mom and dad actually in the basement had a, I believe it was electric ringer, but that electric motor had long since gone or the belt was gone. It was kind of a, more of an antique collectible. Whether they actually used it, I don't know. But William Voss is out of Davenport, Iowa in uh, the turn of the century. And he was not the first one to make the electric uh, washing machine, or even they had gasoline washing machines. I started doing videos, you know, you, I go down the hole, you know, want to research this really well. Uh, Whirlpool had a gasoline-powered washing machine. You actually kind of had a Kickstarter on it like a motorcycle, and there you go, start doing your laundry. But this was used to grab the clothing from probably the hot or cold water, bring it up to the little ramp before it went into the ringer. That way you would not get your hand or any other body part into the ringer because if that ringer was electric or gas powered or whatever, it could be quite painful to get your hand with the clothing into the ringer. So thus, this is formally patented as the safety ringer clothes feeder. Crazy. Who would ever get their hand stuck in a washing machine? You say to yourself, well, Cliff, I, I'm not that stupid. I mean, I, yeah, I've seen Forrest Gump, and I know what stupid is and stupid does, but that's not me. But I know I would never stick my hand into something dangerous, right? Yet routinely, our wisdom fails us, and unwittingly or intentionally, we find ourselves sticking our hand out and hurting ourselves or even hurting others, things that we seemingly know better. It's like that Darius Rucker song that I love, Things I'd Never Do. He talks about all the things he's done that were things he said he would never do. And James is dealing with a church full of people just like you and me. A group that 
would never do things that they said they would never do. But yet, they have done them, and he builds on his comments from the first chapter of James, that fifth verse, that he talks about, if you're lacking wisdom, you need to ask God for it. And he begins in these following verses, actually tying back to the section we just talked about last week about teachers and then controlling the tongue, because he'll use this Greek word, Sophia, which means wisdom, but often referred to in the Jewish culture of the day as a teacher. Those who were wise were the teachers. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like for you to join with me, please. I've lost my, somewhere I've put my glasses. Maybe they're in my pocket. No, they're hanging on my body. There you go. Thank you. You know, usually on my head, you know, that's, yeah, you're getting old enough like that, you, there you go. So um, we realize that James is a faith, uh, it, it is a test of our faith, because I've said all along that a living faith is a working faith. So today we find out a faith that works brings wisdom and peace. Uh, two ladies, if you will, that's Sophia and Irene in Greek. Sophie and Irene. Wisdom and peace. James, the third chapter, beginning at verse 13. And most of you in your Bibles, you're going to begin with, um, it clicks off at verse 18. But I'm going to continue to verse 3 of chapter 4 because I think it goes with that whole section. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life. King James says, by his conversation. In 1611, that was more about not just what you said, but what you did. By your good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Let's pray. Our Father, as we look at a familiar passage, and as many of us sitting here today or watching online, we might think of ourselves as pretty wise. We pride ourselves often on our grades, our academic achievements, how well we've done in our jobs. We even judge our wisdom by the success of our children or grandchildren. But today, James is not necessarily defining wisdom. He's saying, if you claim to be wise, live it out. And through that, we'll find that wisdom with you is found in submission, 
and in peace. Submitting ourselves unto you that we might follow our Savior Jesus and let him be the standard that we live and how we conduct ourselves the way he would have us to be. So in this hour, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Coming off of a conversation uh, at our Thursday morning jumpstart, uh, I was asked what Bible, excuse me, what Bible translation I would recommend to someone. And that's a loaded question, right? I mean, what, what one do you recommend? Well, uh, I recommend one you'll read. I mean, I was never a big fan of the Good News Bible, but if you're reading your Good News Bible, right on. Good News Bible, use it, wear it out. And there are a lot of people, when you bring out this particular Bible, this is the message by Eugene Peterson, uh, or at least uh, he is the one who helped get it together. Um, it is a contemporary English version uh, in modern-day tone and, and terms, and many people are against it due in part to Eugene Peterson. But if it helps you understand a little bit better, and I'm not recommending this one, but I will say this one is easier for me to follow in what seems to be an almost overly complicated way to say, if you want to be wise, then live like you're wise. Don't, don't try to, you know, look down your nose at other people or boast about it or, or even brag about it. So li listen to how Peterson um, and his uh, translators pull this piece together. Do you want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom? Here's what you do. Live well. Live wisely. Live humbly. It's the way you live, not the way you talk, that counts. Mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom. Boasting that you are wise isn't wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound wise isn't wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. It's animal cunning, devilish conniving. Whether you're trying to look better than others or to get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at each other's throat. Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings. Not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy robust community that lives right with God and enjoys its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and are willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to. Your spoiled children, each wanting your own way. Wow. Thank you for stepping on all ten of my toes. A face that works brings wisdom and peace. And to that first point I would like to say that wisdom, having the wisdom to submit, brings us to that faith in action. Who's the wisest person you know? Solomon. 
I didn't really know him personally. I've read about him, yeah. Some old Jesus, okay, I got that. I'm talking somebody that you've maybe gone to school with or worked with. Who's the wisest person you know? Norris? Norris. If you had only, he must have paid you because that was our discussion we had today. In fact, we jokingly concluded that the beginning of wisdom, and I will talk about that, that line from Proverbs, but the beginning of wisdom is realizing how much you don't know. Right? I mean, when you think you know it all, you don't. I don't think you ever will. But sometimes, especially because of the context this is in, the wisest person you may have ever encountered is your teacher. Teachers. Now, some of you who are teachers, oh, no, 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 no. If you're sick and you, you need the right medication or the right extraction or the right amputation or the right filling, I'm thinking of all the people here in this congregation, it could be your doctor. That's the wisest person you know because they brought what you needed. If your cars broke down on the side of the road, the wisest person might be the mechanic. If the lights won't come on in your house, it may be the electrician. If you can't flush the toilet, it might be the plumber. God bless them all, right? Today, the right answer Who's the wisest person you know? Mom. Call them and tell them that if you can still talk to them and still say that. But moms communicated to us many of the pearls of wisdom the Bible has for each, each today. I mean, we learned how to love and had to forgive because of the way our moms loved us and forgave us, took care of us, nurtured us. But before this becomes a Mother's Day sermon, and it really, Pierce and I and Dan and I talk about this. I, I'm staying with James, but if I can throw a bone out, a chocolate bar out to mom, I will do that. We each have ways to test intelligence in our society. Uh, anybody ever take an IQ test? You know what an IQ test is? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> How about, I took an ACT to get into college, and... What's the highest score on an ACT? Not, not your highest score. What's the highest score you could get? What is it, Dan? 27? ACT. It's 30-something, yeah. And if you, you knew people got over 30, they were usually the pretty, pretty good students. I won't tell you what I got, especially in English. SATs, now those have, those have always confused me, and I think they're back to the different numbers now. Is a 1,600 the perfect score for an SAT now? Somewhere, in that, somewhere there. But you can have a super high IQ. You can have done super well on an ACT or, ACT or SAT, all these things, but that's the raw talent. Until you put all that raw talent into action, the use of that becomes the definition for me of wisdom application of that talent. James says, show your wisdom by your deeds. Build upon his earlier comments about faith and works. He says, if you got faith, then show me your works. Show me what it's done. You say you got wisdom, show me what you've done with it. It's that same theme that he's working upon. Are you familiar with the expression in modern day society? And maybe once again, I'm dating myself. But when you say to somebody, he ain't smart enough to come out of the rain. You ever said that before or heard that, had that said to you? Yes, it's, it, it implies that someone cannot recognize or does not have perhaps what we would call common sense to come out of the rain because 
they're getting wet. And unless they're in the midst of changing a tire or something, they have to submit themselves. They have to change what they were doing, stop what they were doing, and go inside and seek some sort of shelter from the rain, unless they want their once-a-week bath at that point. James is saying that wisdom is submitting all to God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. He's not saying this is how you get wise. He is saying if you are wise, you will prove it. What you do, submit to wisdom. Wisdom is submission. Such wisdom, as we have noted before, is not like the intelligence that our culture usually elevates. As one scholar notes, wisdom isn't thinking, setting around thinking wise thoughts and saying smart things. Wisdom instead is God's gift of the ability to look at his creation with his eyes, with his compassion, with his concern, with his mercy, his forgiveness, and his love. Wisdom is that touch of God's grace that you're able to share with someone else. But when I use that word submit or submission, and we'll talk more about it next week because later on you'll see submission in chapter 4. But it's hard for our culture. We're independent people. We pride ourselves on our ability to do things and do it my way, if you will. But we must submit the way that we act the way that we talk, the way that we think to God's way of loving, talking, and acting. Frederick Beekner, as he talks about this passage, when it comes to the word envy, let me just read a little bit of that to you. I want to, I want to read that section that I'm trying to get you to have in your mind. He, what James is doing is he's comparing and contrasting heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. He says... By deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. That's verse 13. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Anybody in here ever found themselves to be envious of someone else? Don't raise your hand. But I'm guessing most of us at one time or another. Frederick Beekner, his little line that I, I love from this, and I, st I give him credit. He says, envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else be as unsuccessful as you are. <laughs> and I would add, selfish ambition wants reward without sacrifice. This is not the way of the cross. Christ wants us all to succeed, and he gave himself for our reward. Reading this week, um, Psalm 90 once again. Psalm 90 is, uh, I've used it countless sermons, uh, funeral sermons. It is that passage that talks about, you know, in the morning, man is like grass that grows and it flourishes, but by the evening time, it is, it is cut, and it's, it's, it withers and goes away. And towards the end of that passage, the writer of that psalm, David, says, And with a sigh, our years come to an end. 
So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What is a sigh? Yeah, that's what I think. A sigh is the thing you cut the grass with. So maybe he's connecting to earlier in the chapter or earlier in that Psalm 90. But a sigh, in fact, if I ever do that at home, Brent and I were talking about it this, even this morning. I said, if I go, is it, what's wrong? What's wrong? You having the big one? You know, or, you know what, what happened? Who did what? What did you read? You know, a sigh often is connected with something sad, something bad. But also a sigh could be, you know, have you ever stepped back from something you've done and kind of go, and I think that's what Psalm 90 is talking about, that you count your days, you number your days, because in each one of those snapshots, each one of those days, you've done something for God's glory. And you can step back at the end of your days and sigh. That is that heart of wisdom. Last week at Ruthie Ford's uh, funeral, uh, memorial service here at the church, we had a, a PowerPoint presentation, and her older sister was here, and, and I didn't get her age, but, but I'm going to guess she was somewhere in that, around that 80-year-old figure, and she said, so many of the pictures I don't think I've seen since we were children, and you could tell in the pictures that she's the oldest girl, and then her brother, and then Ruthie is in there. And she said it was so good to see them because that's the way she said, I think of them. And we talked about the fact that when my mom turned 80, we put together a PowerPoint like that for her. I said, why show it after she's gone? Let her see it now. And she could step back and sigh and go, wow, those are the things I've done. And I say it's the same way for you and I. Not that we want to rest on our laurels, but that you could basically take some accounting and know the things you've done with the wisdom of following and serving our Lord, being submissive to Him. So, submit to wisdom. Second, sow peace. Not S-T-W, S-O-W. Peace in modern times has come to be, well, I think we've been in war since I've been alive at some point or another. I think for, uh, formally we say Vietnam started in 62. I was born in 58. There were probably some sort of French in Vietnam at 58 or whatever, but we've been at war just about forever, whether it be the Cold War, Vietnam, um, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, whatever, the Shield Storm, Afghanistan. All, all of these kinds of operations have been going on. And for most of us, we consider peace to be a time without war. And that is a wonderful thing for us to pursue. But in Hebrew, the very word peace, shalom, means fullness. It means having everything you need to be whole and happy. That's why a departing gesture often in a Jewish community is shalom. May you have everything you need to be happy. May you be complete. The Greek word for peace, as I alluded to earlier, is irene. Sounds like the lady's name, Irene, which was my mother-in-law's name. Peace in the Greek way of thought was wholeness similar to the Hebrew tradition, where all the essential parts were joined together, and that peace was God's gift of wholeness. What does Jesus refer to himself to in the Gospels? He is the Prince of Peace, who has brought wholeness, has brought us together. He is the Prince 
of wholeness. And James says that with the wisdom that you have, this idea, this understanding of who Christ is in your life, that our business here on this earth should be busy sowing that peace that comes from knowing Christ Jesus. Now, some of you I've already lost, so let me bring you back to modern times. I never bring my phone in, but I brought it in today. Not that you can play with it. Some of you, although it's interesting, I, I won't call out who sent me this, but if he's watching online, someone sent me a text during the middle of the worship service. Hmm. I did say it was he, but it, that's, and that's fine. Uh, but if you go to this iPhone, and I'm not really quite, I have to usually go to somebody else because I'm younger than me to figure it out. Uh, software. I am on software version 14.5.1. That means that I've updated that thing. I don't know if the 14, it goes by the year, and the, this is the fifth one for the year or whatever. But it goes along with a blog I was reading this week. And I don't know, Pierce, are blogs dated stuff now? I mean, does a blog mean you're whatever? I don't blog, but I, I, I creep in. I read somebody else's blog. I don't Instagram. I don't. I only use Facebook to look at cars. Those of you who know I like cars. But Rick Morley is an Episcopal priest in New Jersey. He's younger than I am. I, I love his description. He talks about himself. I'm the father. I'm a, I'm a father. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. And I like Nutella. Isn't that the stuff you put on toast or something? Yeah. I don't like Nutella. I've, I was always a peanut butter fan instead. But he told the story in this blog that I've heard before, but I thought I'm going to run with that because it makes sense to this text today. He tells the story of Steve Jobs, uh, the co-founder of Apple, that had a, and this is the myth that many people, parts of it are true. He went to a Xerox, um, it's, it's Palo Alto uh, Research Center, so they called it the, the Park myth, if you will. P-A-R-C is the abbreviation. But supposedly during the early times of Apple, he went to Xerox, this Palo Alto um, research center, and saw the mouse and saw icons on the display screen. And for that, for that user interface, UI, and now I'm talking computer, and I was not a computer guy, and I'm still not. But that UI, that user interface, was, according to the myth, mind-blowing for Jobs. You can argue he knew many of these things already. But he came back, and this is quotable. He said, I want to create for Apple icons that look so good you want to lick them. I don't see anything on here really that good I want to lick. I just, just want you to know. I, there are some chocolate bars in the back. And I, mothers, thank you once again. Those of you who don't pick them up, I'll be eating them. But no, there's nothing on here that good. But the, the user interface, those of you who know anything about computers, is really not the most important thing. It is the operating system that's behind the user interface. That's why that thing upgrades and keeps it going. That's the part that's below, behind the scenes. The other stuff on the top is strictly the eye candy that gets you to click on it to make the user, or the, the operating system, do what it's supposed to do for the user. And some of you I've already lost. I can see the deer in the headlights with the mask. You have no idea what I'm saying. Let me just tell you this way. Have you ever seen an old person use one of these? Or they want to text and they're like this. 
They turn it side, yeah, or they hand it to their kids. When it won't work, that's a problem with the user interface. When you can do this as fast as some of the kids can and it interlocks or it doesn't do what you want to do, that's probably the operating system below. And what Rick Morley, this Episcopal priest, got me thinking about and what he talked about was the fact that in our churches, many times we spend more time with the user interface than we do with the operating system. We're more concerned with the bulletin. And thank God, since COVID came, we haven't had a bulletin since. So we don't consume a lot of time wasted on the bulletin. But we waste a lot of time with the internet and what the website looks like. Because we know it's important to have a good website to get somebody here. We, we spend a lot of time with all the programs that the church has to bring people in, to welcome them, to disciple them, to grow them in the faith. But the most important thing is this part that's below, the operating system of having that peace, of having that wisdom, of having that goodness, that love of Christ Jesus in our hearts that then makes the things that bring people in to want to have and to use. So today, maybe we need to re-examine our operating system. Display your wisdom by your works. So peace that is so pure, so gentle, so willing to yield, so full of mercy and of good fruits that others will be drawn to us, not because of the eye candy, but because of what exists in our lives and our hearts and what we believe. Having that peace, having that gentleness that, in fact, let me read that section to you. I, I want to get you out early, and here I have, I'm taking all your time. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. It's having that gentleness and peace, that very core of our understanding of God, our relationship with Him, that then will radiate and draw others to Him. So, have the wisdom to submit. And be sure as you go to sow peace. Stand with me, please, we pray. Our fathers, we come to a time of invitation. I know that we've barely scratched the surface here. There's so much in James that uh, smacks us and, and makes us reevaluate how we live and how we conduct ourselves. Lord, in your presence, uh, not one of us here is wise. But, Lord, we thank you for the grace and the love that comes to us through your Son, Christ Jesus. And we thank you that we can live as wise people by living humble, gentle, caring, merciful lives that seek to bring others to you. Help us if we need to update our own operating system, our own iOS, that we would change our hearts, drop the things that are holding us back, ask for forgiveness on the things that are holding us down, blocking our relationship with you. And Father, then get busy about sharing the good news of Jesus with those in which we live. If there's someone here today who's never come to a saving knowledge of Christ, I pray that you would speak to their hearts. If there's someone here, Lord, who just wants to come to these steps of this church and, and kneel and pray or stand and pray, we welcome them to do that. For the doors of the church are open, and we ask your Holy Spirit to move in our midst. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.